Chapter Three, Part One of the Works of Robert G. Ingersoll, Volume Ten, Ingersoll's Opening Address to the Jury in the Second Star Root Trial, Part One of Five. This is the LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Washington, D.C., December twenty-first, eighteen eighty-two. May it please the court and gentlemen of the jury, we consider that the right to be tried by jury is the right preservative of all other rights. The right to be tried by our peers, by men taken from the body of the county, by men whose minds have not been saturated with prejudice, by men who have no hatred, no malice to gratify, no revenge to wreak, no debts to pay we consider an inestimable right regarding the jury as the bulwark of civil liberty take that right from the defendants in any case and they are left at the mercy of power at the mercy of prejudice the experience of thousands of years, the experience of the English-speaking people, of the Anglo-Saxon people, the only people now upon the globe with a genius for law, is that the jury is a breastwork behind which an honest man is safe from the attack of an entire nation. We esteem it, I say, a privilege a great and invaluable right that we have you twelve men to stand between us and the prejudice of the hour we believe that you will hear this case without passion without hatred and that you will decide it absolutely in accordance with the law and with the evidence this is the tribunal absolutely supreme in a case of this character, gentlemen, you are the judges of what is the law. You are the judges of what are the facts. You are the absolute judges of the worth of testimony. And you have not only the right, but it is your duty to utterly disregard the testimony of any man that you do not believe to be true. You i say are the exclusive judges and for that reason we ask we beg you to hear all this testimony to pay heed to every word and then decide not as somebody else desires but as your judgment dictates and as your conscience demands here before this jury all letters of attorneys-general all desires of presidents, all popular clamour, all prejudice, no matter from what source, is turned simply to dust and ashes, and you are to regard them all simply as though they never had been. There is one other thing. Some people are naturally suspicious. It is an infinitely mean trait in human nature suspicion is only another form of cowardice the man who suspects constantly suspects because he is afraid whenever you find a man with a free frank generous brave nature you will find that man without suspicion 
suspicion is the soil in which prejudice grows and prejudice is the upas tree in whose shade reason fails and justice dies and allow me to say that no amount of suspicion amounts to evidence no case is to be tried upon suspicion no case is to be tried upon suspicious facts no case is to be tried on scraps and patches and shreds and ravellings there must be evidence there must be absolute solid testimony a case is tried according to the rocks of fact and not according to the clouds and fogs of suspicion no juror has a right to make a decision until he feels his feet firmly fixed upon the bedrock of truth so i say gentlemen that we are glad of the opportunity to make a statement of this case to you and to tell you exactly the manner in which my clients became interested in what is known as the star root service you have to be guided in this case by the indictment that is the star and compass of this trial you cannot go outside of it the evidence must be confined to the charges contained in that instrument if you find us guilty of a conspiracy it must be such a conspiracy as is set forth in that indictment that indictment is the charter of your authority and you have no right to find us guilty of anything in the world except that which is therein charged now let me give you an exceedingly brief statement of what we are here for it is charged in that indictment that all these defendants including one who has been discharged by a jury who has been found not guilty mr turner including another who is dead mr peck conspired together for the purpose of defrauding the united states and we are met at the threshold with the statement that conspiracy is very hard to prove it is like any other offence gentlemen they say conspirators generally meet in secret my reply to that is that people generally steal in secret and the fact that they stole in secret was never deemed an excuse for not proving the offence before they were found guilty you can see that this is precisely like any other offence in the world men when they commit crimes endeavour to get away from the public eye they are in love with darkness they do not carry torches in front of them and it is so in every crime but whether conspiracy is difficult to prove or not it must be established before you can find the defendants guilty that is a difficulty that the government must overcome by testimony the jury must not endeavour to overcome it by a verdict and i say here today that the same rule of evidence applies to this case 
as to any other and you must be satisfied by the testimony the government will offer that these men conspired together that they entered into an arrangement wherein the part of each was marked out and that that arrangement was contrary to law and that the object of that arrangement was to defraud the government of the united states this indictment is kind enough to tell us the means that were employed to carry out that conspiracy how did they find these means gentlemen they must have had some evidence on which they relied if they had evidence enough to convince them they must introduce that evidence here and if that evidence establishes beyond a reasonable doubt that these men conspired then you will find them guilty otherwise not the difficulty of establishing it is something with which you have nothing to do how did they conspire what were the means they had agreed to use let us see thomas j brady was the second assistant postmaster general the postmaster general was not included in the scheme consequently they must deceive him the sixth auditor was not included in this conspiracy and as by virtue of his office it was his duty to go over all of these accounts and pass upon the legality of each item it was necessary to deceive him according to the indictment mr turner was a clerk in the department and his part of the rascality was on the jackets enclosing petitions to make false statements in regard to the contents of the petitions enclosed the object of that being that when the second assistant postmaster general mr brady exhibited these jackets to the postmaster general it being considered that he would not have time to read the petition he would be misled by the false statements on the cover touching the contents the next step was for the contractors to get up false petitions that is petitions to be signed by persons who did not live along the route upon which the mail was to be carried these petitions also to be forged that is to say the names of persons put there by another or the names of fictitious persons written when in fact no such persons existed the next thing to do was to write false and fraudulent letters to induce others to write such letters the next thing to make false affidavits and the next thing to make false orders those to be made by mr brady and these false orders were to have as a false foundation false petitions false letters false communications false affidavits and fraudulently written representations that is the indictment that is the scheme said to have been entered into by my clients with all of these defendants and the object being to defraud the government of the united states now in order to establish that scheme it would be necessary for the government to prove it 
not to assert it neither have you the right to infer it no man can be inferred out of his liberty no man can be inferred into the penitentiary that is not the way to deprive a man of his reputation and of liberty by inference they must prove it they must prove that the petitions were false they must prove that the letters were fraudulent they must prove that the orders rested upon those false and fraudulent petitions letters and affidavits and they must prove that mr brady knew them to be false it is also stated in this indictment that service was to be paid for when it was not performed that service was discontinued and a month's extra pay allowed that fines were imposed and afterwards set aside because the contractors agreed to pay fifty per cent of such fines to general brady i will speak of them when i come to them now there is a clear statement what part then did my clients play in this scheme i will tell you it is charged in the indictment that john m peck was in this scheme and although he is dead whatever he did i imagine can be established by the government a man can be found guilty i understand of having entered into a conspiracy with another although the other be dead and the living man can be convicted now it is stated in the outset that my clients never had been engaged in carrying the mail and that is regarded as an exceedingly suspicious circumstance a man has got to commence some time if he ever goes into the business and if this doctrine be true the first bid that a man ever makes is evidence that he has entered into a conspiracy suppose on the other hand my clients have long been engaged in this business what would the government counsel then have said they would have said gentlemen that they had been engaged for years in the business they knew all the tricks that were played and consequently they were the very persons to form a conspiracy and that is the wonderful thing about suspicion it changes every fact it colours every word it reads and every paper at which it looks and no matter what are the facts the moment they are regarded with a suspicious mind they prove what the man suspects so then the first charge is that we had never been in the business and consequently our going into the business must have been the result of a conspiracy gentlemen if the doctrine be laid down that it is dangerous for a man to make a bid the result of that doctrine will be to double the expenses of the government in carrying the mails all that will be necessary then is for the old bidders to combine they will know that there is no danger of any new men interfering with them because the new men will be immediately indicted for conspiracy and the old men will have the field to themselves 
you can see that this is infinitely absurd there is only one step beyond such absurdity and that is annihilation no man can possess his faculties and get beyond that absurdity if it is evidence of conspiracy because it is the first thing as a matter of fact however john m peck had been engaged in the mail business he was engaged in the business before eighteen seventy four he had been interested with others before that time he was interested in several important routes from eighteen seventy four to eighteen seventy eight it was in the fall of eighteen seventy seven that he made arrangements to bid at the next letting he was a businessman he was not an adventurer he was secretary at that time of the arkansas central railroad he had been i believe for two sessions a member of the arkansas legislature he was in good standing solvent and regarded as an honest man in eighteen seventy four he was interested in the bids and as i said was engaged in carrying the mails at the time these contracts were entered into he became acquainted with john w dorsey i believe in eighteen seventy four when he made up his mind to put in more bids for the letting of eighteen seventy eight he went after john w dorsey and they met together in the city of new york i believe in the month of september and agreed that they would put in some bids for the letting of eighteen seventy eight peck was acquainted with john r minor and had been acquainted with him for a considerable time mr minor wanted to go into some other business than that in which he was then engaged and those three men made up their minds to bid was there anything criminal in that nothing any man anywhere have the right to combine the right to form a partnership the right to come together for the purpose of making proposals for carrying the united states mails of course you will all admit that now that is what they did there was nothing criminal nothing secret nothing underhanded everything was above board open and in the daylight there is no conspiracy yet and we will show that john m peck had been troubled with a lung disease he had gotten much better in september and thought that he was almost well later in the fall he took a severe cold and got much worse and from that difficulty i believe he never wholly recovered he went however to colorado and new mexico and finally died now let us see about john w dorsey i believe that great pains have been taken to say that he was a tinsmith which is a suspicious circumstance why is there any law against a tinsmith bidding to carry the mails is there any such provision in the statute and yet that has been lugged forward as one of the evidences of a conspiracy in this case and it has been lugged forward in a way to cast some disgrace upon this man simply because he was a tinsmith well do you know 
i have as much respect for a good tinsmith as for a good anything what is the difference sometimes i have thought i had more respect for a good tinsmith than a poor professional man sometimes in this country of all others labour is held to be absolutely honourable and i think a thousand times more of a man who works in the street and takes care of his wife and children than i do of somebody else who dresses well and lives on the labour of others and then is impudent enough to endeavour to disgrace the source of his own bread i think the man who eats the bread of idleness is under a certain obligation to speak well of labour and yet we have the spectacle in this very court of the attorney-general of the united states endeavouring to cast a little stain upon this man as a matter of fact and i am almost sorry to say it john w dorsey is not a tinsmith i am almost sorry to make the admission he happened to be a merchant which is no more honourable but somewhat easier he dealt in stoves and tinware that gentleman is his crime and upon that rests the terrible suspicion that he is a conspirator and i want to say more that his reputation for honesty his reputation for fair dealing is as good as that of any other man in the state in which he resides he made up his mind to cast his fortunes with john m peck and with john r minor and make some bids for carrying the mails of the united states that is all there is about it there is however another suspicious circumstance and that is that john w dorsey was the brother of stephen w dorsey and stephen w dorsey at that time was a senator of the united states that is another suspicious circumstance whenever you find a man with a senator for a brother put him down as a conspirator another suspicious circumstance john m peck was the brother-in-law of s w dorsey absolutely married a sister of mrs dorsey and that was the beginning of this hellish conspiracy it was suspicious he intended to rob the government when he was courting that girl now we come to another man mr john r minor and the suspicious thing about minor is that he lives in sandusky but that of itself would be nothing dorsey lived there once too now do you not see how they moved that town with the diabolical purpose of swindling this great government minor was not in very good health do you not see pretended to be sick so that he could leave sandusky and in some way minor and dorsey were excellent friends another suspicious circumstance and for several years whenever john r minor visited washington he laid the foundations of this conspiracy by always stopping at the house of senator dorsey another suspicious thing and do you not recollect the delight the abandon with which mr bliss emphasized the word house 
when he said that they met at Dorsey's house. I had a great notion to get up and plead guilty on that emphasis. Minor came here. He and Peck were acquainted, and wherever you find four men acquainted, gentlemen, look out, there is trouble. When Minor came here, he went directly to the house of Senator Dorsey. I admit it with all the damning consequences that flow from that admission. He did not even go to a hotel. He went directly to Dorsey's house. I want that in all your minds, because the prosecution regards that as one of the foundation facts in this conspiracy. And while admitting it, do you not see how much I save them in the way of evidence? And there is another damning fact connected with this case. Dorsey, in the top of his house, had set apart one room for an office. It was up two or three pair of stairs. I think he established his office there to shield himself a little from the people who usually call on a senator in the city of Washington. But he found he put himself to more trouble than he did them. So he moved his office to the lower part of the building, and when John Minor got to that house, he occupied a room next to that office, upstairs, and sometimes he went in there and wrote. Now, you see, gentlemen, how that conspiracy was planted, how the branches sprang out of the windows of that room and covered all the territory of the United States. I might as well admit that frightful fact. I do not know that they know that, but I might as well admit it, because we want the worst to come first. Before Minor came here, he wrote a letter. There is another place to put a pin of suspicion. He wrote a letter to S.W. Dorsey. That is, it was Minor or Peck. I have forgotten which, and maybe that very forgetfulness of mine is another evidence of conspiracy. A letter was written either by Minor or Peck to Stephen W. Dorsey, saying that they were going to bid, that Peck was not well enough to be here at that particular time, and would he be kind enough to hand that letter to some man in whom he had confidence, and let that man get such information as he could with regard to the routes upon which they expected to bid all these western star routes. Now, what did S.W. Dorsey do? There was a man in town by the name of Boone. He sent for Mr. Boone, and I believe that Mr. Boone went to Mr. Dorsey's house, and that Dorsey handed him that letter in his house. And what was the object of the letter? For Boone to get information regarding these routes. Well now, what did Boone do? Boone made up a circular which he sent to all the postmasters, or most of them, through Oregon, Washington Territory, Colorado, New Mexico, Nevada, California, Kansas, Nebraska, that is to say, the western states and territories. In this circular, a certain number of questions were propounded to each postmaster. First, the distance from that post office to the next, and from the next to the next and so through the route. Second, the condition of the roads, whether hilly or level. 
third about the snows in winter and the floods in spring fourth the cost of hay and corn and oats fifth the wages that would have to be paid to the man or men and it may be some other questions in addition now these circulars were sent by boone to all the postmasters in consequence of a letter that he received in dorsey's house what for so that by the time that minor and peck and john w dorsey came they could sit down and bid intelligently upon these routes so that they would have some information that would guide them in other words that they would not be compelled to bid at random now we will show gentlemen that that was done and if at that time there had been a conspiracy certainly such information was of no particular value now that is what mr boone did and i believe that is about all he did at that time there is no conspiracy yet no fraud yet it is utterly impossible to defraud the government by getting information from postmasters as to the condition of the roads and as to the distance from one post office to another there is no fraud yet no conspiracy up to this point in a little while mr minor and mr john w dorsey appeared ah but they say stephen w dorsey was at that time a senator of the united states yes he was and i believe he remained senator until the fourth of march eighteen seventy nine when his brother came we will show to you that stephen w dorsey said to his brother i would rather you would not bid i would much rather that you would keep out of this business because i am a senator and somebody may find fault somebody may suspect and consequently i would much rather you would get out of the business john w dorsey did not agree with him he said he did not see how that could interfere with him and that he believed he could do well in that business and the consequence was he went on there is nothing suspicious so far as i can see in that that is what we will show this man being a member of the united states senate did what he did out of pure friendship did what he did for his brother what he did for mr peck and what he did for mr minor from pure friendship i know it is very difficult for some people to imagine that any man does anything for friendship they put behind every decent action the crawling snake of a mean and selfish motive my opinion of human nature is somewhat different i have known thousands and thousands of men capable of disinterested actions thousands of men that would help a brother a brother-in-law or a friend and help them to the extent of their fortune i have known such men and i never supposed such acts could be tortured into evidence of meanness the first charge against stephen w dorsey is that he sent some bonds and proposals for bids to a postmaster by name of clandenning in the state of arkansas the trouble with these bonds as i understand it was that the amount of the bid was not put in the blank in the printed proposal 
it is claimed by the prosecution that according to the law the postmaster has no right to certify the solvency of the security until that blank is filled i want to explain this so that you will understand it i think i have one of the bonds and proposals here i would like to have the court see exactly the scope of it the proposal is that the undersigned whose post office address is and of the county of and the state of proposes to carry the mails of the united states from july first such a date to june thirtieth of such a date being four years between such and such a place under the advertisement of the postmaster general for the sum of dollars per annum now if i understand the matter of the clandenning bonds they were filled up with the exception of the blank in which the amount of the bid was to be written that is the charge as i understand it whenever a man makes a proposal to carry the mail for four years on a certain route that proposal must be accompanied with a bond in a certain amount and certain men must sign that bond as sureties and then a certain postmaster must certify to the solvency of the sureties the sureties having made oath as to the value of their property now understand that perfectly it is not the bond that a man gives after his bid has been accepted it is a bond that he gives to show that his bid is in good faith that bond is conditioned that if the contract is awarded to him he will give another and sufficient bond not only but i believe it is also conditioned that he will carry the mail the charge is and let us get at it just exactly that some bonds were sent to a man by the name of clandenning who was a postmaster and this blank was not filled let me tell you why it was the custom and i want your honour to understand that perfectly because so much was made of it before in talk to leave that blank unfilled it is the blank for the amount of the bid in the advertisement of the government the penalty of the bond is stated so that the amount of the bid has nothing to do with the penalty in the bond understand me now if the bond was for ten thousand dollars it was because that amount had been put in the advertisement by the government it did not depend upon the amount of the bid it had nothing to do with it the amount of the bid threw no light upon the amount of the bond the penalty of the bond was fixed by the government before the bid was made and inserted in the advertisement published by the government why then did they not wish to fill up this blank this blank gentleman told the amount of the bid where there are many bidders and an important route if you let the postmaster who has to certify to the sureties know the amount of the bid he might sell you he could go and tell somebody else i have certified to all sureties on this route and the lowest bid up to this time is fifteen thousand dollars and the person whom he told might go and bid fourteen thousand nine hundred and ninety nine dollars and take the route ah 
but they say the postmaster is not allowed to tell the amount of the bid no what was the penalty if he did he would lose his office now here is a postmaster holding an office worth perhaps a hundred dollars a century or perhaps fifty dollars a year and by selling information as to one bid he might make ten thousand dollars i do not know what he could have made certainly the bidders did not feel like trusting the secret of their bids to the postmaster who certified the sureties as a consequence the bond was filled up with the penalty according to the advertisement but the blank in which the amount of the bid was to be written was not filled because they wanted the postmaster's mind left a blank upon that subject in other words that the blank was left unfilled not to defraud the government but to prevent other people from defrauding the bidder that is all there is about it that is everything about the clandenning bonds but it may be well enough to state gentlemen that those clandenning bonds were never used on a solitary route in this indictment and i believe never anywhere that no contract was ever awarded upon any of those proposals the only rascality in the transaction gentlemen was the failure to fill a blank and the reason they failed to fill that blank was because they did not want the postmaster to know the amount of the bid let us come right down to practical matters and things for instance suppose one of this jury is in the stone cutting business and the government should issue an advertisement calling for proposals to furnish dressed granite and specify that every man who bid must file a bond in a penalty of five thousand dollars to carry out his contract and that the bond must be approved by the postmaster here suppose it was a contract of great proportions would the man who bid be willing that the amount of the bid should be inserted in the blank to be passed upon by the postmaster no why he would not want the postmaster to know it who else would he not want to know it he would not want his sureties to know it a man might be standing by while the bond was being approved and read the amount of the bid the bidder would be afraid somebody would get at those figures and go and underbid him. Every man of common, ordinary sense knows that. If you made a bid, you would not let your sureties know the amount, and you would not give the amount to the keeping of a postmaster, neither would you leave it to chance or accident. You would say, I will leave the amount a blank i will keep it in my mind and when the paper comes into my hands for the last time i will write it in there and fold it and seal it and give it to the government that is what every sensible and prudent man would do and what has been done for years and yet that act is brought forward as something to stain the reputation of an honest man something to strike down as with a sword the character of an ex-senator they even say he wrote upon paper that had the mark of the united states senate chamber upon it that is only another evidence that there was nothing wrong in it 
it was stated too in the opening of this case that an affidavit was made upon paper that bore the mark of the national hotel of this city think of such a damning circumstance as that well gentlemen so much for the clandenning bonds we will prove that the blank was left unfilled on purpose not to defraud the government but to prevent other people from defrauding us let me say in that connection that there was an investigation in eighteen seventy eight upon this very question that clandenning bonds were brought up testimony was heard and we will be able to show you the facts that i have stated then if i am right gentlemen there is nothing in it and when the opening statement was made the government knew just as well as i know that there was nothing in it at least they ought to have known it probably it is not proper for me to say they knew it because men get so prejudiced so warped so twisted that it is hard to tell what they know or what they do not know but that has nothing to do with this case and in my judgment will never be admitted by the court if it is admitted by the court we will establish exactly what i have told you so much of the clandenning bonds do not forget that the penalty of the bond was put in by the government do not forget that the amount of the bid was left blank simply to protect ourselves do not forget another thing that leaving that blank unfilled could not by any possible peradventure injure the government the bond was just as good with that proposal unfilled at the time the sureties signed it as though it had been filled it had to be filled before it was finally given to the government or else there would be no bid if there was no bid then no obligation rested upon the sureties certainly they could not be harmed and if there was no bid certainly the government could not be harmed unless the bid should have happened to be lower than any received and yet out of that nothing out of that one bramble a forest of rascality has been manufactured gentlemen that is the result of suspicion when it is hoed by malice and watered by hatred this ends chapter three part one of five read by edward kirkby warwick england